The General Planning Podcast takes you backstage to explore the world's decision-making and planning. We will get you into the minds of successful leaders and executives in our government and industry. You'll hear firsthand how they made some of America's historic decisions. I'm Bob Whittle, Deputy Commanding General at Army North, and my co-host is Mark Lavin, our Director of Strategy, Plans, and Policy. Join us as we learn about planning and strategy from our nation's best. Welcome back to the General Planning Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Mark Lavin, and our All Things Podcast here at Army North, Sergeant First Class Barham. And today, we've got a special guest, Kirk Doerr, who Sergeant Barham and I have both worked with in the past. And I'll just introduce him briefly. So Kirk and I went to the School of Advanced Military Studies together, and then we were planners together in the 1st Infantry Division. In fact, we're both majors, but he was my boss. He was the chief of plans, and I was the one of the two maneuver planners. And we'll talk more about that. He also commanded Joint Task Force Bravo in Honduras, where he worked with several country teams, ambassadors, really was on the precipice of what we call support of that interagency work. And then... Later on in his career, the capstone event really was he was the director of the School of Advanced Military Studies. So he went back to SAMS as the director and graduated a few hundred students while he was there. So he's got a lot of insights into the course and into planning that we're excited about. And Sergeant Barham, you had a chance to work with Colonel Kirk Doerr as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I did. He was probably the most approachable commander that I've ever worked with, especially at an 06 level. I was the operations chief for American Forces Honduras and American Forces Network Honduras. And he was the Joint Task Force Bravo commander. He brought a lot of cohesion, a lot of high morale to the six, around 650 service members we had down there and another 650 plus civilians. So it's an important job. And I'm very just thankful and grateful to have met him and then worked under him. Welcome, sir. Awesome. Kirk, it's good to have you on, and I'll tee up the first question. One, any three comments you want to make yourself, opening remarks-wise, and then after that, really tell us about your favorite planning assignment and why it was your favorite assignment. Absolutely, Will. Hey, thank you, everyone. Good to be here. I just, first off, I'm just humbled by the comments that were made. It was my privilege and honor to serve with both General Whittle and Storm First Class Barham, and then Mark Lavin is recognized one of our top strategists in the entire U.S. Army. So it's great to have you in the conversation. I am a veteran of U.S. Army North. I'm proud of that. Learned a lot about the interagency and working with multinational partners there in Canada and Mexico. And I know the heavy lift and the mission set there at Army North is, is quite a challenge. But thanks to the entire team at Army North for being fantastic and supporting both the Homeland Defense Mission with DISCA and the other activities outside the United States. I want to congratulate General Whittle and his family for uh, over three decades of distinguished service. He's one of my favorite people on this earth, and just to participate here with him is just a blessing to me. Thanks, Bob, for your friendship and for your service to the country. This is a special thing for me to do with you. 
So thank you. Yeah, currently I'm a professor at the Command General Staff College and just another opportunity to take off the uniform and invest in the education of our young field grade officers. I really enjoy it. Brings me a lot of meaning. And I think it segues into the discussion we're going to have today. So to get it, General Whittle's first question there in terms of some of my favorite assignments that I was able to apply some of the tools from the School of Advanced Military Studies. I would point out to two things or two assignments in particular. One was our first assignment together in Germany with the 1st Infantry Division, General Whittle. Now myself and another gentleman, incredibly talented officer, John Reynolds, graduated from the school and traveled to Germany. And at the time, I don't think we really understood what we had gotten ourselves into, but the division itself wasn't on the patch chart for deployment possibilities, but we found ourselves after a few weeks of being alerted and being directed by execution order to deploy to Iraq to participate in Operation Iraqi Freedom. So what should have, or typically is a one-year utilization tour after the School of Advanced Military Studies, who had probably involved one warfighter exercise that would test the division and corps headquarters against a scenario and, a, and an op, simulated op four. That would probably be the A type experience for a planner to go through. We find ourselves in a maelstrom of activity that included validation of our command posts, validation, execution of a warfighter exercise by the Mission Command Training Program here at Fort Leavenworth to validate our readiness to deploy to Iraq. Several field exercises, several trips downrange in Iraq to uh, take a look at what we were going to inherit from the 4th Infantry Division, who we conducted our relief in place with in 2004. And also trips to lovely places like Scott Air Force Base for deployment planning with the task of taking not only the, the division plus all enabling units from our headquarters in Würzburg and central region Germany, but also other units from the continental United States and have them all close trains, planes, automobiles, roughly at the same time, same location in theater in the CENTCOM central command theater of operations, get them moved up into the country of Iraq and get them in position to relieve a multitude of units in place. And at that time, there really, we were still figuring things out. There wasn't a ton of understanding and knowledge of the environment we were going into. And there was a lot of uncertainty and the tenor and tone you know, on the ground in Iraq was changing and evolving and we can get into it, but we saw several evolutions of the threat in Iraq itself. And we did have to make some adaptations and react to that. Uh, but it was certainly challenging for three young majors. I think the battle staff, Bob, if I'm correct, was about 27 officers total when you got it all together from disparate staff sections with the three of us as the leads trying to assemble, conduct some peer leadership and assemble a team. And in terms of leading that planning effort and trying to figure things out, leading the team, educating the team on our standards and our approach, prioritizing the effort for the team and conveying guidance from our general officers and senior leaders, coaching them in stride as we, um, as we, participated in planning efforts to 
manifests itself in action to get the division in place and executing operations, quality controlling all the inputs and outputs for the team, and then representing the work in front of senior leaders as we conducted briefings and wrote orders for subordinate organizations. And then at the end of the day, protecting the team from distractions, from other things that would would take unneeded attention or activity, just keeping us focused and protecting the team from other forces that would draw effectiveness away from ourselves. That was a challenge as a young major coming out of the School of Advanced Military Studies. And it was one heck of a challenge. Again, we were figuring things out and there was no better crucible to learn and apply what we took away from the school in a really environment of unknown. So with that, thank the Lord I had such talent like Bob with us. I'm not sure how you felt about it, Bob, but that, those were probably the, that was probably the r- most rigorous, toughest year professionally and personally that I experienced. What were your thoughts? No, I, I completely agree. And I think we took everything really personally because there were so many people that were depending on the work that we did and it was life and death, quite frankly, out there. And we wanted to get it right. And we were busy. One time, Kirk, we were working in, a, <laughs> be interesting if you remember this, but we're working in a vault there in Würzburg, Germany, getting ready for the deployment. And my wife called, my son had locked himself in the bathroom. He was like a little bit over two years old. And we live not far from the office. So I sprinted to my apartment, kicked the door down to the bathroom. He hid in the bathtub and the hardware flew across, looked at him, said, are you all right? He says, yeah, I'm good. And then ran right back to work. That's it's just how busy we were back then. It really was. And I think we really, if you wanted to use a movie analogy, it was probably one of those gladiator. It was probably like the movie from gladiator. We would just circle the wagons in the arena and we had all these forces flowing around us. And we knew that we had to really unite and develop that bond of trust that I really, and I've shared this with you, Bob, just the fact that we were, we had to rely on each other. We had to build bonds of trust. We were working incredibly hard and uh, you got to maintain a sense of balance as well and here's another point for discussion today is how do you maintain professional and personal balance given the demands that are foisted upon you and i really believe that bob whittle brought to the planning staff and the certain certainly to me personally a perspective related to the story just told where i can remember bob coming into the planning vault looking me in the eye and saying Hey, remember, your priorities where you spend your where you spend your time, and at that time we were way off balance, and we were essentially living in the work environment in that musty vault. And uh, he reminded us all that we had to keep always contextually our families and our personal life balanced with our professional life. And I'll never forget that advice he gave. And we actually took time to structure. Or, or came come to an agreement on the rhythm of the office so that we could afford as much time as we had to, to our families. Again, an important factor not to forget, particularly when you're in those tough jobs. You did a great job, Kirk, of providing leadership to that 25-person battle staff that we were describing before. And this was definitely a time where people just wanted to see someone step up so that they would in turn step up as well. And you did really great with that. The truth of the matter was, 
the cavalry wasn't coming. We were really, it was on our shoulders. There were no answers. There was a lot of information and some knowledge, some general knowledge within the staff itself. There was a lot of knowledge in the staff and a lot of experience. But to pull all that together, to operationalize this commanding general's intent, to gain an understanding of the problem set we're about to face, unbound problems, right? Ill-structured problems, something that there was no two-inch page order that was going to be handed to us that gave us all the direction and resourcing that we needed to accomplish the mission. We had to figure a lot of that out. And I don't know how you felt about it, Bob, but I think the schooling we received enabled us to conceptually begin and get our dry erase markers on the whiteboard and begin to frame out and to define what we believe the problem to be, and then to walk the dog from there. And that's a framework that we could take, that we received from the boss, that we could take into the staff environment and put, for lack of a better term, meat on the bones. We actually, just last week, Mark Lavin and I brought in some outside organization and showed them how we do planning in the military. With, and we started with two blank dry erase boards. And when we were done, in 90 minutes, we had the framework of a campaign plan. But turn it over to Mark. Yeah. No, excuse me. Sorry. So it's great to hear you describe that in terms of solving the problem. I'll be interested to see what, how that relates to the next answer for my question. So the other factor about the Army is how small the Army is. And so I'm listening to you talk about your time in the 1st Infantry. So I'd say duty first as a young company commander there up in Tikrit while, while you and General Whittle were down in, I think it was Fob Danger, at the time. But getting to my point, though, I guess my question is, so when you look at planning, I'm going to give you the question first, and I'm going to contextualize a couple of your jobs. In terms of planning, what are some of the more important aspects or the most important aspects of planning large? And as you think about that for the audience, so Kirk, you are the SAMS director. And so every year, the Army makes an investment of anywhere between 80 and 130 majors that says, hey, we want you to spend an extra year really becoming subject matter experts and professionals within this sin of planning. And Kirk ran that for some time. So it's not that he just attended that as a school, and but he was responsible to the Army for producing essentially a generational impact on the Army. And so as you went on or as you, you were a battalion commander or a brigade commander, Kirk, can you talk about one of those more, most important aspects of planning and then how did that impact or how did that give you success as a battalion commander or as a brigade commander? Yeah, I think the School of Advanced Military Studies is a phenomenal PME, professional military education institution, really formulated 39 years ago, 1984, with the what we consider the father of the institution, Colonel Huba Vastaseja, a Vietnam veteran and he made a proposal to the TRIDOC commander to establish a, in a, a school with an additional year of study following the Command General Staff College. And historically, he looked back and did some analysis and found that CDSC at two points in history had an additional year affixed to it. One was prior to World War I, and the other time period was prior to the great expansion of the army in World War II. And it was of such magnitude and benefit to the leaders that were graduates of the two-year program that at one point 
Vasasaja points out that in war, World War II, every division and corps, and we had a lot of them, were commanded by what he described as two-year Leavenworth men. So that additional education and foundational experience translated itself into success out in the field and two of our most important conflicts that we faced. And so he used that as part of his justification to bolster our Command General Staff College experience, selectively pick talent from a pool, not just of the Army, but we also bring in the other services and international partners and afford us the additional year of education and then set us out in the field as extensions of the school, really to help senior leaders drive the planning processes, drive the operations processes, enable decision-making, provide them viable options that would ultimately result in the achievement of favorable strategic, operational, and tactical outcomes. So 39 years later, the brand of SAMS is incredibly strong. But when people ask me, Mark, is it the curriculum? Is there some kind of secret selection of books or readings? Is it the faculty? Is it just the environment, the way the school is organized? I say yes to all those things, but the most significant variable that I think has not changed has been the human capital. The human capital that we bring in there as students, that's the secret sauce, okay? You find the right self-directed person with good practitioner experience, a skill set or an aptitude for learning and reading and writing. And you can take that energy and that talent and just really in a year's period, build off the less the experience in CGSC and then give them that third year at division and core level staff. So it's really a three-year program, the advanced military studies program or what we call the majors program. It's a three-year program when you look at it in its totality. And again, 39 years later, the brand is above, it's just a stellar brand because of what is being delivered out there in the field. And then because those graduates can do the hard jobs and succeed in ambiguous situations, we have selection rates, for example, for the, for the majors program, we have selection rates for battalion commander that are well north of 60%. And that's pretty amazing that now we're now taking that talent and we're putting it in further and further roles and responsibilities of, of higher levels. And they're delivering there too. The seed corn with that military education is just, is just really powerful and it has been powerful. But for the school itself, I just have to remind people there is the majors program, the advanced military studies program, but I think there are 130-ish graduates a year. You've got the Senior Service College Program, which is called the Advanced Strategic Leadership Studies Program, which has 16 graduates. That's for future brigade commanders. That's a war college equivalent. That's the second school within the SAMS portfolio. And then the most recent kind of layer or program within SAMS itself is the ASP3, or Advanced Strategic Planning and Policy Program. And that is a PhD-driven program where we Again, very selective. We select candidates. We send them to fully funded PhD programs and the multidisciplinary PhD institutions, both in the United States and in Europe. 
And then we bring them back into the field with those, with those PhDs. So they're in positions of influence at the four-star kind of level outer offices, helping senior leaders make decisions. So I didn't want to shortchange the fact that Sam's, the rubric is there's three different programs within it, a huge investment in professional military education, along with your functional area, Mark, the 59 program. General Whittle asked me, what motivates an, ar an army officer to want to undertake that additional education, knowing that they're going to be going into extremely difficult jobs in the future? And my response is, personally, I felt like I needed that additional year at that point in time. The twin the towers had fallen. We were at war, and I wanted to get as ready as I possibly could be. I was also keen to history, and then I was I had a kind of a uh, a desire to get smarter and more affluent on our doctrine. And some of the theoretical underpinnings of conflict, human conflict, and international relations, and the various theories, complexity theory, string theory, game theory. I had an interest in that, but I had a mentor that was trying to ask me not to attend the school and to go right to the field after graduation from the CGSC. And I can recall vividly attending one of the SAM seminars and just being amazed at the energy in the room, the self-directed nature of the students, the fact that they were really driving the conversation at an extremely high level I had never seen before, both the intellectual level and their preparedness. And the seminar leader really was just sitting back and that amazed me as well. But it really was a, a great example of the, the adult learning model that we practice here in the schoolhouse where the students really drove the learning. And that got me hooked. And between my desire to, to become a better officer and just want to be part of something that special. And I wanted the hard jobs. I wanted to be on the, on the varsity. I wanted the challenge. And so I didn't consider myself a planner at all, at all. I consider myself more of an operator, but I think at graduation, I was able to do both and do both fairly well. What do you think, General Whittle? I agree. I wanted to go to become a combined arms officer. I knew I was making the grade as an engineer officer, but I really wanted to become a combined arms officer. I wanted to be able to look at a map board and the graphics and understand everything on there right away. And I knew SAMS was a course that would allow me to do that. And also that whole iron sharpening iron analogy. I remember walking into my seminar and Scott Jackson was in my seminar and he made some remarks during class that day. And I thought, if I'm as smart as he is when I graduate, as he is going into the course, I'm going to be fine as a planner. As you're just around all these brilliant people, self-motivated people like you described. Sir, we worked together in Joint Task Force Bravo in Honduras, you as the commander. And I just want to know, with regards to planning, how did the joint planning process and working with interagency partners come into play as far as unstructured problems down in that area of responsibility? Yeah, thanks for the question. You talk about complexity. The, my area of responsibility or joint operational area, what the JTF Bravo team was responsible for in terms of where we operated was... Central America. So the seven nations of Central America, we were the extension of the South Con commander. Essentially, we were the majority of the South Con commander's assigned forces, the forces he had on hand 24-7 for application to solve problems. Additionally, got seven ambassadors and their country teams 
that you're supporting their efforts and the efforts of their country team. What I mean by country team is everybody from USAID to the World Food Program to uh, the State Department writ large. So you've also got service component headquarters as well for each of the services represented in the AOR answering the Southcom. So you're trying to support their requirements as well. So you really have a lot of folks that you're supporting and that you require support from as you try to execute the Southcom commander's priorities. And so for a Colonel, as a joint task force commander, you're interfacing directly. Your boss is a four-star and you're answering to the combatant command headquarters. And that's a big deal without the layers traditionally that are between an 06 level command and higher headquarters. So that's rarefied air for a colonel. Additionally, you're 900 miles away from the flagpole in Doral, Florida. I remember two pieces of guidance that I received before I deployed to take command, and I'll never forget it because it was very empowering. Two pieces of guidance from the SOCON commander were nothing is worth the life of an American service member in terms of you know, the operations you're conducting. And number two is no matter what happens, I have your back. And so I felt super empowered as I left the headquarters to take command down there. But that was the limit of my guidance. I was expected to cover down on the portfolio and the mission sets of the Joint Task Force and to not only be effective in my relations with the interagency, that we're conducting operations in Central America, whether it be working with multinational partners in the region, supporting the exercise program or operations from the other service components across Central America, executing the SOCON commander priorities in an area of the world, which is fairly austere. Now, Soto Cano Air Base is a contingency operating base. And of course, the facilities are pretty nice and have been robustly built upon over time, but it's still considered a continuously operating base and it's fairly austere. Again, limited resources, a lot of priorities, a lot of folks that think that you're, you work for them and not a lot of direct guidance from a headquarters is 900 miles away. That was interesting. Central America has got a bunch of challenges and a bunch of things that kind of pop up over time that are unanticipated whether it be response to humanitarian crises or things of that nature. I would say that at that time, and of course it's, it's progressed even now, but at that time, the State Department was wrestling with the, the unaccompanied children migrant flow from the Central American countries up into homeland. And at that time, we were trying to figure out how to mitigate the traffic and the resultant abuse and just the negative things that happened to unaccompanied migrants that were trying to traverse out of their troubled areas in countries of Central America up into the United States. And the resultant ways to look at root causes, but also to try to assist the State Department with reducing the flow and then repatriating some of the families that ultimately chose to return back to their home nations. And the leaders of those home nations were very, were very interested in trying to stem the flow and to bring back particularly unaccompanied minors that were being sent north. And so one of the problem sets that I had to take on was 
in conjunction with my State Department partners and other interagency representatives was to develop a system and a process to get unaccompanied minors back into that footprint of the Soto Cano Air Base and to use that kind of as a hub to get them, the families linked up with proper local authorities and transported back to their home villages and towns. So uh, you, can you talk about that a little pro- bit, Kurt? Can you talk about a little bit about when you were working with the State Department folks, right? So you have this military sort of background, education for planning. You're trying to get things done as a commander with a lot of latitude. What was that yeah. like? Did they see the world differently? Or was there was there a tension or did they look to you to do all the planning for them? Or can you just unpack that a little bit? Yeah, so... It is the military's approach to planning is a little bit more structured, and I would argue, and I think I wouldn't get a lot of pushback, that we're a little bit more detailed and a little bit more structured in the way we conduct our planning than our brothers and sisters in the State Department or other interagency organizations. So it's just those are our systems and processes. They deliver results, and quite frankly, I had a lot of capability at the Joint Task Force Bravo, both in terms of infrastructure, had incredibly large airfield running and operating that thing. I, I had a pretty large, significant rotary wing aircraft fleet there as well. I had security forces. I had logistics capability. A lot of cap- I had security on the base in terms of creating a safe haven. And then I had a huge medical capability as well real professionals with a lot of medical capability, probably the most in the region. And so I had a lot of of that capability. Um, And as I've said to a lot of military officers, just because you have that capability doesn't mean you have the authority to conduct actions with that capability. You have to be very cognizant of what those authorities are, because there are very clear authorities about what you can and cannot do with military forces. And so you need to know that and navigate that. And then it's also, there's a funding aspect of it as well. There are certain funds that can be used for certain activities and certain funds that cannot. So just because you have all those things I listed in terms of capability doesn't mean you can apply them to a problem set. You've got a lot of other hurdles that need to be, and there's a lot of dialogue between the State Department and Department of Defense. So a lot of times I had to literally pick up the phone and talk to my bosses at the South Carolina headquarters and relay an emergent request for support and then they would take that on for me and work the coordination the authorities piece and the funding piece and then determine whether it was something i could or could not do and, and they would order me to do do so after adjudications again we had a lot of capability it doesn't mean i could apply it to problem sets that the interagency looked at us and said wow okay we've got a lot of things there we'd like you to do x y and z and Part of it is doing that dance, particularly as a, an 06 colonel with, for example, the chief of mission or the ambassador and having that dialogue about what the art of the possible is and trying to not be the no guy, but to develop a way or develop options for them, just as I would for my military boss, try to develop or sketch out some, op- some options with their military people in the Office of Security Cooperation or the military group, the military people within their embassies trying to develop some solutions or an approach that would work. And again, seven different countries, seven different personalities, no country team is built the same way, but we were able to navigate that, that pretty effectively. And again, 
because I looked at JT Bravo as the action arm of, of Southcom because we had the most assigned forces. The other two joint task forces under the Southcom rubric are joint JTF Guantanamo, and we know what they do, and then a joint interagency task force South, which really does a counter drug mission in the Caribbean in the surrounding areas to prevent flex flow into the homelands. I was really the big show in town and I could essentially project power with my airfield and with my aviation force. I could project capability throughout Central America and really into, we, we did it into Haiti. We also can do it down into South America. Really, we had a lot of ability to affect problems on the ground as they arose and to support steady state things like exercise programs or other activities that were ongoing. And again, I'm also doing coordination with the other militaries from those seven nations as well. And uh, again, a lot of players, a lot of folks that look at capability and want things done, but then there's the understanding of the art of the possible as it relates to funding and authorities and staying true to the guidance of the Southcom commander. Kirk, that is such a large and complex command that, that you were in charge of. And, and you had a lot of great experience coming up in the military. I can see why the Army chose to send you there for sure, because you've got to have the right person to figure things out and solve problems while you're down there. I wanted to ask you about pitfalls for all those planners out there, both in industry and in the military what are some of the problems that they might run into that could stop them from achieving their ideal end state when they're planning? Yeah, these are just common things that may transpire because, you know, we have to appreciate the nature of military options, military operations, and the uncertainty that it is always going to be a nature, that fog and friction we talk about with our famous military theorists there's always going to be an element of uncertainty. And to point these pitfalls out is not a criticism. It's just the nature of what we go through as planning staffs. And so I'll go through a couple of them. And a couple of them, I think we personally had experience with, Bob. And so I'd invite you to jump in. But the important thing to remember is that commanders or CEOs in business, they focus the planning effort, right? It just doesn't happen or happen in and of itself. So there is that guidance that has to be issued and that intent and focus that has to be conveyed to the staff. Otherwise, that lack of focus can lead you into places that are could be, in many cases, dangerous. So the first pitfall I would point out is the lack of commander or CEO involvement in, the, in that planning process, right? All too often, their commanders and CEOs are busy people. And there's always a reason not to interface with those folks that are doing some of the cognitive, cognitive work to help solve complex problems. But there has to be a process in place and touch points in place where that boss can give the planning staff some guidance, foundational guidance, some background, and provide kind of the deliverables. This is what I'm looking for. 
at the outcome of your planning effort. This is what I need from you. And in turn, the planning staff should have an opportunity to actually put a bill at the table of the commander or the CEO and say, look, understand all, but this is what I'm looking for from you. This is what I need, require from you. And that can be in the form of a personal interface, or it could be in the form of some kind of check guidance checklist or some kind of primer that stimulates the commander to provide the necessary components for the staff to, to go ahead and initiate planning. So without commander's involvement, both at the outset and then at touch points throughout the planning process, you know, that train can go off the tracks very easily. And then you could end up either not hitting the mark or wasting a lot of time and resources at achieving an outcome that you're just never going to get there. The other thing that happens is that sometimes there are gatekeepers who preclude touch points or interface between the planning staff and the boss. Most times the intent is just, it's altruistic, but for some reason we like to keep a, some kind of membrane between the boss and the planning staff. There's hazards with that because then you end up playing the telephone game. Things get misconstrued or misinterpreted. And again, a lot of frustration results because you're not hitting the target. The boss is frustrated. The staff is frustrated because they wasted their time. And then the recognition that if we hadn't had these filters or these membranes between us and the boss delivering guidance and giving us in stride course corrections, that, there's something to be said for a healthy organization that has that interplay. And I remember, particularly as a young major, going into Iraq early for a site survey and sitting in or being embedded with the 4th Infantry Division planning staff. And I was in their plans cell and I'll never forget the door swung open one day and in comes this giant of a man who drops his gear, jumps in the chair at the head of the table, throws his boots up on the desk and reaches for a cigar. Now, that man was, God rest his soul, the beloved General Raymond Ordierno, who would ultimately become the Chief Staff of the Army. And I will never forget the impact and the power I witnessed of his direct interface with these young majors, peers that I had graduated school with. And he was not only giving them observations from his circulation around the battlefield, things he was witnessing, he was giving them planning guidance. And then he was asking for their feedback on what they were seeing and hearing, both in their conversations with the core, the higher headquarters, and what they were hearing throughout the division, and getting their take on what their perspective was. And he was weaving that into his understanding of the situation. I had never seen that type of interface before. It was powerful and allowed them to cut to the chase and really deliver some products and some plans that were extremely effective. And I remember that was in a expando van that they were working out of back then too. You yeah, know? the crit Iraq Colonel Evan was talking about. Just I had never seen that type of interface and I remember it being very powerful. And it and I just remember him asking the opinion of those young majors and them not even hesitating to provide their read on the situation. And that's a pretty poor you've got a two star major general there interfacing with a yeah. newly minted SAMS graduate. I, that was really powerful in my mind. Yeah, he's a, he was a good human being, which is the number one ingredient in a good leader. A couple, I just will make a couple comments on what you just mentioned. So when you're trying to get guidance from your boss or from the CEO as a planner, it, 
I try not to ambush them when I walk in. So I, I don't walk in with a blank piece of paper, and you were alluding to this, Kirk, and just say, hey, sir, here's the problem we're trying to solve. What's your guidance? And then put it on them. Because I know that me and my team, we've had all kinds of time to think deeply about this problem, do some mission analysis initially, and the boss probably has barely had a chance to reflect on it. So I like to say, hey, this is what I think your guidance is, but I'd like you to take a look at it and see if you agree with it or if you want to go in another direction. And then it's so much easier for them to then look at that and then say, hey, no, you're out of your mind. We're going to do it this way. Or, yeah, that's exactly right. Or let's make these changes. And that's a technique. And the other one, Kirk, that I learned from you is when you do get guidance from the boss, the next time you meet with them up front, you tell them, hey, sir, ma'am, this is exactly what you told us last time as we understood it. I've got it listed here in the first couple slides or in this first couple paragraphs of this paper. Let us know if we got this right. Yeah, you're exactly correct. Important for a planner to understand that it's a dynamic environment. And that senior leader, in this case, the commanding general, he's out there firsthand observing the environment evolving. He's also, or she is, talking with subordinate leaders, right? And putting things together and then bringing that back, hopefully, and feeding that to the planner so that you can update your estimates and update your approach, right? So it's not a static set it and forget it type of process. And you have to understand that you don't have in that, in this case, in a sterile headquarters of Tikrit, there's a lot going on in the environment that you don't, you're not aware of. And so you're going to put things together and provide critical pieces of the puzzle, but the commander you, we use the model, understand, visualize, describe, direct, right? You're helping the boss visualize the end state, visualize the operational approach. And then ultimately, as you go through the planning process, you're helping describe the boss's visualization and time, space, and force and purpose and resources. And then ultimately, when you issue orders, directive, you're helping direct that activity that you're constantly assessing from beginning to end. And then again, leaders are helping drive the organization through through this, ultimately to execution of some kind of operations. Yeah, wow. it's an interplay with the commander. You're an extension of the commander. You're a cerebral component of the commander and helping them develop options. And that's what's important is you don't drop other problems on the boss's plate. They're busy enough. They have very limited time. Most leaders, whether it be in business or the military, have very limited time. They're already taxed. They're probably a little bit physically and mentally exhausted at times. So you've got to assist them whenever possible and help recalibrate them whenever possible. But there has to be that interface that we started with here in the conversation about commander's involvement. So, Kirk, I think... You bring out a really good point for all the planners out there. And it, quite frankly, I'll just put it this way. If you're a planner out there and you're not getting the guidance from the commander or from the chief executive officer, whichever executive you report to, that's your fault. You've got to get time on that calendar. You've got to have yep. the courage to wedge your way in there. And you've got to bring something in there so that they can look at it Maybe it's some draft guidance that you think he would give you so that they can make a quick decision and then you can walk back out. The conversation has to start somewhere. And I don't think at the, when I was a young major, I was mature enough to understand that you've got, you have an obligation to come to the table, 
maybe being a little forthright, maybe a little bit too much for your time or grade, but you've got to come to the table with a system or a battle or a rhythm event where you can shape, when you can get the boss, even if it's in a limited time block to have that dialogue and the interface we're talking about, because you, a planning staff should be working on different time horizons, right? So you, there are short range plans that in planning and execution, you, your organization should be working on. There's a mid range planning horizon. And then there's a long range planning horizon. They all feed into one another and are interconnected, but there could be incredibly different in their nature and their scope. Right. And so not only do you need to update the boss on kind of the short range planning and execution, but you've got those other time horizons you need input on because the worst thing that can happen is de deprive the boss of options because of either you didn't allow the boss an opportunity to weigh in and make decisions to shape the future, or they've lost the flexibility to exercise any options at all because that time is done and gone. Or if they want to impart guidance because they have a concept that is out there in time and space that it's going to require you to work on and actually invest some time and effort and maybe bring in some additional resources. You need that space, right? So when you have that interface with the CEO or the boss, you've got a cover of several different ranges in time of the planning effort, right? Because if you're doing short range kind of planning and updates only, you're just playing whack-a-mole. And then you also have to make sure that you're organized for that type of planning effort and protecting those planners so that they don't get pulled into the current operations whack-a-mole where they're deprived of the ability to look deep because they're pulled into the here and now, or they are, they are known as the fix-it people that can come in and they're smart, they're capable, they can do a lot of things, but if you have them working short-range problem sets, you're really losing out on the greater benefit. So if I could just take you back a little bit to what you talked about in terms of SAM selection processes and then the human capital being, uh, I, th I think you said the, the secret sauce for Correct. for planning, at least in the military. And then I heard you talk about your time as the Joint Task Force Bravo commander and then the ability to leverage relationships across the combatant command enterprise, uh, if you will. And so the human capital piece of it, the relationships piece of it, now as an as a professor teaching cohorts of similarly ranked individuals, how can you just talk a little bit about, is there a competition? Is there mutual support in terms of those relationships when you've got planners who most have very big personalities, very large craniums? Can you talk about your experiences in terms of how do you manage that or how does that get managed? Is it good friction? And then how do you drive that? Yeah, that's a great point. I think there's much more than intellect involved here. At the time, I think the emphasis when Bob and I were going through school was being a good teammate, being a good steward. And then the motto, be more than you seem, right? Have an aspect of humility and bring that into everything you do. Because what you find under the duress of the of the curriculum is that I felt, and I still feel to this day, that I know less today than I <laughs> than I feel like I knew coming into the classroom, right? So it's very humbling with such a challenging curriculum 
getting just looking at the world and the complexities and the nature of our business and just being completely humbled by that. Also being humbled by the fact that that your work ultimately, at least in the military, is going to result in putting people in harm's way. And I never forgot that, right? I never, I took that with me throughout my entire career was understanding whenever there's a planning effort, ultimately you're putting someone in harm's way. And it's a really healthy mindset to have, particularly you're going to find yourself on the pointy end of that as well. And uh, you always got to remember the soldiers, sailors, airmen and Marines and guardians that are out there that are executing those concepts and plans that you're deriving. And so that's very humbling. I think there is a, you're right. There's some triple A type personalities, very astute, smart, top of their branches, and they're very aggressive in what they do. And I think a lot of that is goodness, right? I think there is an aspect of the selection process where I think we're looking for someone who does exhibit humility, both in word and deed. That can be detected in an interview process that I think we still, we interview every AMSP candidate. And I think generally speaking, probably not a perfect, we generally can readily identify those folks who are, their motivations aren't necessarily the right ones. It's more about themselves than service and duty to others. And that is one of the factors that, that are assessed in the selection process for sure. And then we all have reputations out there as well, professional relate, reputations that really magnify once you become a field grade officer. And so it's keeping that all in check. I think we as graduates tend to police ourselves really well in the field. Uh, and there's nothing worse than having someone, as we say, disparage a regiment or bring, bring shame on the regiment or bring shame on the school because they acted in a way that wasn't reflective of that humility that we're striving for. So it can be an issue. I think it, we do a fairly good job of screening it. I think it's a mindset and it's something that's acculturated in the school itself. And then we, I think we live, we try to live through the, through those credos. And I think we do a pretty good job of policing one another and keeping us all, keep us ourselves in check. I would say that the Sam's helped me with a lot of things. It helped me to lead disparate groups of experienced and inexperienced officers and civilians and other folks to achieve good outcomes, develop great options for the boss, which ultimately resulted in, in, in operations that were successful. It gave me underpinnings and history, doctrine, and theory that I had not experienced before and models that I could use and apply to help me solve problems that were, there was no solution or relevant or resident solution that we could discern. So you're starting from zero and you're figuring things out because of some of the tools that are afforded you. But I, I think one thing I just want to tap the desk on is the network of its, I, I can honestly say I never felt alone out there once I graduated from the school, not only because I was started out working shoulder to shoulder with John Reynolds and Bob Whittle, fantastic human beings that I was, <laughs> I learned so much from, but I could pick up, I knew I could pick up the phone in any headquarters and talk to the, the SAMS graduates, whether it be the Corps, Division, Army, um, Service Component Headquarters, Combat Command Headquarters. I knew there were gr fellow graduates in, the, in those headquarters that knew what I was going through 
and they would drop what they were doing. They would drop everything they were doing to run to the sound of the guns and help another graduate because they understood the duress, the, the difficulty, the natures of the job we were performing. And that network has sustained me for decades. And I leaned on it and I like to think I reciprocated when I could. And the friendships to this day, I count Bob Whittle and I have a twin brother, but so I can't call him my twin, but I do call him brother because of the network and the fact that I know if I needed anything, it didn't matter what time of the day, he would be there for me like I would be there for him. And that network is strong, it's vibrant, and it goes beyond folks, folks that aren't even wearing a uniform anymore that are out there doing great things. Everybody understands the, the ethos and everybody understands the nature of what we're trying to do, which is to make things happen out there for commanders. Well, Kirk, I feel the exact same way. You're, you're definitely a blood brother of mine, and you and I have discussed that several times over the last couple of decades. Interesting point that you just made about all the Sam's classmates that are out there, because when General Odierno put his feet up on the desk, his chief of plans was Matt Elledge, and then Tim Norton and Judy Price were the two assistant planners, and we had just graduated from school with all of them just three months earlier, so... It's just such a great network. Last question for you today. This is the easiest one. Do you have a book that you would recommend our audience maybe take a look at? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you one plus a bonus. Okay. So I'm going to I'm going to go off the grid a little bit. I'm not going to tell you anything for dummies 101. I'm going to give you something that's affiliated with kind of a trending hot topic out there as folks try to get smart about what's happening in the world. And as I said, at Sam's, we like to educate on history, doctrine, and theory, but this one's more of a historical bent. Okay. And this is, this book is, was written by a, uh, a professor's name is Arnie Westad, W-E-S-T-A-D, first name A-R-N-E. He's a Norwegian, but he taught at Harvard. And when I was there as a senior fellow for the army, he was one of, one of my professors. He's now teaching at Yale. And his focus of study is Asia since the 18th century. And so the book title I'd like to recommend for all of the all of you that have been trying to get your arms around the challenges and the Indo-PACOM area responsibility, trying to understand China, the country, and why China acts the way it does in the international system and what motivates it. I think it's important to understand the historical underpinning. Westad wrote a great book. It's called Restless Empire, Restless Empire, China and the Western World Since 1750. Again, I commend that book. It really opened my eyes as to why the emergence of China is occurring the way it is and how, they, how the Chinese leadership sees themselves in this world. Okay, my choice, so selection number two, and it's going to be reflective of the host of today's show, General Bob Whittle. Mother's Day is coming up, and I am going to suggest Chicken Soup for the Mother's Soul, <laughs> which an essay was written wow. by one each Robert Whittle, and the title is My Mother Says. So, again, happy Mother's Day to, to all the great mothers out there, and, and I know how proud the Whittle family is of Bob's accomplishments. And so there's my number two, Bob. Surprise. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm impressed that you remember that from long ago. Thanks. It's been great having you on here. Mark, you have any, any comments before we head out? 
No, I really appreciate it. Really appreciate your time and really appreciate your service and, and continuing to serve and educate the next generation of, of Army planners and interagency and sister service planners there at Command General Staff School or college. So I appreciate your service. Yeah, Kirk, I was really pleased. And I'm going to give you the last word, Kirk, and then we'll sign off. But the, I'm so pleased that you're teaching our young majors out there at Fort Leavenworth. Just as we went through this today, listening to you just off the cuff, going through all the different doctrinal terms and your your experience and your command of all those tools is really great. And it's going to be good for our Army. And these majors are the ones that are going to save us in the future in a world that's getting more and more complicated. It's also great to connect with you again and look forward to seeing you at Leavenworth. Or if you're ever here in San Antonio, let me know. Kathleen and I are staying here. And just over to you for any last comments that you have. Again, thanks to all of you. Congratulations, Bob Whittle, on a fantastic career. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. I just want to leave it with a quote that has been attributed to um, Dwight David Eisenhower, but I think he appropriated it from some others. But I think it's applicable as to what we talked about today, which is plans are nothing. Planning is everything. Okay. And really that resonates with me. It's the processes we undergo to, to make the world a better place, to take on tough problems. It's not necessarily that, that, uh, that order or directive that, that, uh, that eventually gets published, but uh, it's the constant studying of the environment, the constant search for solutions to take us from a current state to a desired state. So I appreciate the opportunity, folks. And again, thank you. Thank you, Kurt. Duty first. Thank you.